What's up, guys? Hope everyone's doing well. On this episode, we have Chad Longworth. Chad is someone who I found actually on Twitter. His name is C- at C Long Baseball. He puts out some incredible content. He has his own website, ChadLongworthOnline.com. He's the founder of Velo Lab. Um, he works with professional high school, college, all sorts of different athletes. This episode is going to be really valuable, whether you're a, a fan, a coach, scout, especially a player. Uh, we get into a lot of different drills that Chad does with his players and just his overall knowledge of hitting. Um, he tells you what to do, what not to do. I really think you guys are going to enjoy this episode. Um, before I forget, please make sure to head over to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. That helps immensely, um, and I really appreciate it. So head on over to iTunes at the end of this episode, subscribe and leave a review. And without further ado, Chad Longworth. We are now live with Chad Longworth of chadlongworthonline.com and the founder of the Velo Lab, which can be found on his website. Chad, really appreciate you coming on today, man. Yeah, man, no problem. So right now I'm actually looking at your website, chadlongworthonline.com, and you got some really interesting things on here. you got player development, uh, hitting guides, instructional drills, unlimited email and tech support. Um, what was the motivation on putting together this website for players to look at? So, I guess it's probably more the story of of my how my coaching career and I suppose my teaching career has evolved um, over the last two years. Um, I've been kind of a curious guy, trying to figure out how things work or how we can make things better, you know. And, and so exit velocity and launch angle and all these things start, you know, becoming buzzwords because of stack hat in 2015 in Major League Baseball. And so I messed around with a lot of swing centers um, during that time, just found one in a cage one day and put it on a bat and started exploring kind of, kind of the number side of development and Probably 18 months ago, two years ago, I purchased the hit tracks just on a whim. Um, I thought we would use it for, for, I thought we would be able to use it in the cage for gaming and leagues and all these other things. But a lot of the guys we were training at the time, um, it became more of a, a development tool than a gaming tool. But when you started, we started looking at exit velocity, um, we started we were always hitting, kind of hitting the same failure point, I suppose, with guys. We would be able to get them so far, and we wouldn't be able to get them any farther. And so my motivation has always been uh, trying to help players and trying to help players find better answers. And so we started messing around through, through the research and studies that have been done by all the people that came before me, Coop Duran mainly, on the overweight underweight training. And so we started building out our own bats, messing around with weighted bats and overload bats and underload bats. And we were really starting to get some really, really nice, measurable results, not anecdotal opinion results. 
this swing or that swing. We were getting results, but at the same time, we were giving players more freedom to find their own swings through that. And we were getting results, and so it came to a point that, you know, if I'm going to be true to who I am, which is I want to help as many players as I can help, then we should really put this online and share it with people. And so we built out that part of the website. I was going to do it for free, and then one of my buddies talked me out of it. He's like, man, you've got too much time and too much too much equipment invested into this. You need to charge a little bit for it. And so we charged for that piece, that segment of the website with a little bit of money to help you know, fund further research and fund things that we can do for players and equipment that we can buy. There's all kinds of tech equipment out there now that, that we need that, that will give us better information to further improve the programs. And kind of that's where the program came from, and that's how it continues to evolve. So is it based around hit tracks? So it, it, it is, it, so it's, it's, it's backed by all the data feedback that we get from hit tracks. You can do it without hit tracks. Hit tracks is just basically our, our tool of measurement for the program. You know, it's, it's like lifting weight. You're going to, you're going to want to know if you're getting stronger, you're going to max out. Well, exit velocity is kind of our maxed out number. Like, are you, are you getting stronger? Are you getting better? Are you going the wrong way? If you're going the wrong way, why are you going the wrong way? And there's there's so much valuable information that comes from that thing, matched with video. Um, it's just a really it's a really great measurement tool for us that really kind of validates and measures the training that we do. And then we we share the program. We share the exact roadmap and training program that we do here people that maybe don't have a hit track, you can still build out your own beta bat system and go and do the things we're doing. And so, so would something like a blast motion sensor be similar or a lower version, I guess, of what you're implementing? I'm a Diamond Kinetics. I'm not affiliated to Diamond Kinetics anyway, but we use Diamond Kinetics swing sensors. Um, yeah, to all of our online clients, I encourage them to get a Diamond Kinetics swing sensor because it does give you some measurable feedback on bat speed and barrel acceleration to, to be able to track and monitor whether you're getting, whether your swing is getting faster and more powerful and able to produce more exit velocity, even if you're not able to measure the exit velocity of the swing sensors, especially the diamond kinetics because it measures barrel acceleration, which is a hugely important factor, um, is important. You know, it's a great place for anybody to start uh, producing some measurable feedback. Are you affiliated in any way with Driveline? Because I see on your profile you have some Driveline products um, that you're using. I am not directly affiliated with Driveline, but we use all of their programming because it's really fantastic. Um, their Kyle's work. From I mean, it's really something that I admire and look up to from a measurable feedback standpoint, I mean, he's got measurable tools to measure performance and output and input, you know, the best in the industry is from a pitching side. And from a hitting side, I just aspire to, to be able to, to build out my quote fingers, a lab per se, to test our theory with hitters to that level. I mean, his measurable tools are great. We use programming because I trust 
programming to a level that I can never test and no one can test them, to be honest. So we just follow what he does. We make some modifications for our position players within it um, because it's it's really – he has some position player modifications, but he uh, a lot of his stuff is pitcher-focused. And while we do train pitchers, hitters are our – Hitters are, are our staple, and we, we, we make modifications to the driveline throwing programs um, to, to, to train our hitters to, to throw balls harder, too, because uh, they got to play defense. No, I got you. That makes sense. Do you just work with amateur players, or do you work with professionals as well? So I work with a lot of college players. I don't work directly with any pro guys. I probably... I don't know, indirectly through video and 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 communication like that um, with, I don't know, five or six pro guys, but nothing directly. We don't have any pro guys training in-house. I live in the middle of nowhere, so it's not like pro guys are walking around using our building to train in in the off-season. It's hard to get to. And, and so, but indirectly, yes, um, I wouldn't claim them to be using our programs or anything, but they, they're always looking for insights and, and um, information to help better their careers. Well, I definitely think you work with a lot of professionals because of your online presence on Twitter. I think so many professional athletes are on there looking at your content on a daily basis, so you definitely work with professional athletes as well. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the hands in hitting. The hands have always been such a big um, – thing that people talk about i know nowadays you talk about donaldson he doesn't says you know i don't even think about my hands but a lot of hitters they don't know what to do with their hands so what is your philosophy on where to put your hands um, when you're hitting so i don't i think hand placement in a setup is as far as height goes so let me back up just a minute and, and say this and we have probably four or five parameters that we that we that we kind of want our hitters to fit within. They're not they're very broad. They're not very specific. It's just if you can do these couple of things, then it will give you the freedom to kind of organize and swing the bat the way you were built to swing it. And so and height is not something, you know, kind of do what feels good to you, you know, above your shoulder, below your shoulder. You know, you see guys all over the place as far as hand height goes. The one, I guess the one specific thing about, about the hands that we talk about is just keeping them spaced correctly and then not letting, within that, not letting them get outside your back elbow. And so spacing is just simply based. They, they stay in the middle of your elbows. So your hand placement always stays in the center of your elbows. And then you try to try to keep that one connected triangle turning to contact. So if you can envision your hands being the top of the triangle with your two elbows, then we're talking about trying to maintain that spacing and turn, turn that triangle, both fingers triangle to contact. Um, one of the errors you see with it is, you know, the, the bat lag where guys' hands are not really guys, but kids' hands dump outside their back elbow into a drag position, and they kind of drag the barrel through there. That generally cleans up, though, 
that they gain muscle structure and they're not flexible. I don't have any guys that do that anymore. Um, it's, it's older guys, younger guys, they do it, but they only do it because they're 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 so flexible and their joint mobility is so crazy. That usually cleans up naturally because they're so. When we talk about loading and we're talking about creating um, stretch and potential energy. We talk about loading the rear arm, meaning the rear arm, using the scap. I think if you become too hand-focused and you become too focused on the finer, um, finer muscles, or like those small muscles in your hands and forearms, then you tend to get your stuff out of position, inconsistent. And so um, we focus more on um, loading the back arm, rolling the back arm, and then creating energy in the shoulder joint and then pinning and stabilizing that using the muscles that surround the scap around the back of the shoulder, which is, um, you know, if you back up from a, from a younger kid place, um, we, we just kind of start them in a place where they're, 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 they're already have created their stretch. And we talk about taking the slack out. Um, they've already kind of taken the slack out of their torso. So now, um, they can swing the bat with high intent, which is what we want them to do. We want them to try to swing hard and hit the ball as far as they can all the time. Um, that, that corrects swing plane. We get kinematic sequence correcting. Like Without these advanced terms with young players, we just try to put them in these positions to where these things start to naturally develop. Is there a certain cue that hitters should be focusing on when they're in the box, like throw your back hip at the ball or – lift your leg when the pitcher separates or is there anything like that that they should be focusing on? So as far as the hands, I mean, the last piece of the kinetic chain and we focus the least on it. You know, swing, there's an article on Jerry Brewer's website um, that where he wrote about um, swing time. And if you look at the time of a swing from the time that he timed major league players in frames per second, um, you look at major league swings from the time they pick their foot up to the time they arrive in contact, 80% of that time is spent loading and creating and storing potential energy in the body. And then, so 80% of our, that time is spent doing that, and 20% of the time is the actual moving of the back. And so we spend way more time in the loading phase, creating energy, storing, maintaining, spacing, all those things, the contact we talk about swing per se. So with when so it, it depends upon what environment the, the hitter is training in. But if you're going to go to a environment, then all we're talking about when the ball's flying at us is, is be on time and and mash it, do damage with it. We don't want them to become overly internal. Um, hitters, the biggest issue with hitters. There's two big issues with hitters. One, uh, they have the wrong intent, and two, they become too internal about their process. They don't allow natural organization and natural sequencing to happen, especially in that environment. Now, there are, as you back up, you know, you backwards chain, that's a driveline term, if you backwards, you, if you're working backwards through the process, then, um, get the ball to where it's fitting still on a tee, then we, then we focus more internally 
within our basic parameters of, of loading, we, you know, we, we spend a lot of time on loading, and then we use the way that that implements to kind of organize swinging process. So it just depends on where they are in their process and what their focus, internal focus becomes. As, as, the, as the ball becomes faster and the speed become more game-like, they become way less internally focused as far as, you know, what are my hands doing or what are my arms doing or what are my – and at that point, they're just trying to get it into autopilot and be on time, see it, see it well, and, and hit it as hard as they can in the air. I mean, not to be overly simplified, but, but you know, in the game, they don't give you extra points. And I, I talk about that a lot. They don't give you extra points for um, having a good lead arm or having a good back leg or whatever. They just, you know, hit the ball hard. There's a time and place to work on those things, but when it gets to the game, just hit the ball hard, and that's all we're looking for them to do in that environment. So when you say bad environment, are you talking about coaches who don't want to their players to be athletic, like that type of bad environment? So I'm talking specifically externally. I'm talking more in the game. Okay. But in the speech, yeah, in a training environment, um, yeah, even in there, um, again, we, we try to focus in about four or five places. Most of that is in during load phase things, like you know, hinging or taking slack out or, or you know, lead leg or whatever. Like, focus in those places because most of the swing process is that. And then, and then allowing the hitter to naturally organize sequence their swing process um, and we refine that using the overload underload and implement training um, weight to bat training um, we go several different directions but that just to, just to make the player's swinging process more refined without over cueing it because you know over cueing becoming overly internal and I was there I've been there as a coach and I think I think everybody they've been there as a coach because that's kind of the Way to my, that's the way I was, you know, brought up through coaching and through professional baseball, and you know, and, and even in the learning process in school, you're just kind of given instructions and told what to do, and then, um, and then you try to do that, but you know, there's a in skill and skill acquisition and, and development, and there's a, there's a limitation before um, you become overly internal, and, and uh, we've all seen. Rick Ankiel or Chuck Knobloch get the yips, having to golf all the time with putters, you know, just guys that become overly too too overly internal about whatever they're trying to do and they, they're not focused externally and to execute the outcome. You know, that's a place we talk about a lot. It's just when the ball's flying at you at eighty five, ninety miles an hour, just try to execute just be focused on trying to execute the outcome. Like be on time and try to hit it in the air. That's what we're trying to do. So just be focused there. Don't be too too overly internal because they're not they're not going to give you an extra base if your left foot's really good. You know, they try to be on time and hit it in a game. How many overload underload swings should they be taking a day during the off season? So during in our program we get between hundred and twenty and hundred and fifty uh, three to four times a week. Um, you know, if a player wants to hit seven days a week then he doesn't do a whole lot. Uh, we space out his overload, underload training. Of 
accordingly and on those days specifically um, whatever they want to do we can do um, mainly on those days that we're not going to do a whole lot of overload and underload we just hit a lot of fastballs as a machine I think it's really really important that players hit fastballs not just slips or overhand comfortable BP I think you've got to explore and find your limitations and then run at them. You know, that's one thing we talk about and I think happens a lot in, in the, uh, the lessening industry is, you know, you get a kid for an hour and you just make him comfortable and everybody feels good and you sing Kumbaya and the kid goes out and he can't get the game. And so you haven't really faced his, his, his limitations and so hitting fastballs is an important part of the process because an uncomfortable thing and you got to run at it. you got to find your edges and run at them, not run away from them. Um, and so, you know, we if, if a guy's not going to do overload underload training in a day, we, we get a lot of fastballs. When you do the overload underload training, do you take swings with the regular bat as well to help balance it out? Yeah, the, the regular, the regularly weighted bat is part of their, their, their process in their overload underload. Um, Training days. Um, we just—it's a lot of variant. It's a lot of variation. Um, you know, depending upon what they're doing, how much overload they've got. You know, we swing fifty to sixty ounce bats from Whoa. the strength position off the tee, and then we work into stuff that's more in the range of twenty percent in loaded, non-loaded. When the ball gets moving. Um, once we, you know, the progression is, is very similar to driveline. It's really kind of driveline and spot inspired. Is you can't throw a two pound ball um, from a full throwing, from a full run in throwing motion. And so you throw the two pound ball in the driveline program from a very constrained position, and you're working on specific things, not working on them, but specific things are going to start organizing. And so we do the same thing with 50 to 60 ounce bats from a very constrained foot position. We can really isolate upper body organization and mechanics and, um, and we can start to work on different things and get different central nervous system and different muscle sequencing and patterning and so we start do by doing that, and then we work into when you get closer to what their full swing is going to be, then their bat gets closer to what the gain weight of the bat is. And so from a very constrained lower body position, um, we get into a you know like a like a roll in T drill with their regular bat where they're just three step roll in and trying to trying to time their their rear arm stabilization and. And then, and then just hit the ball. And so that's kind of how. And then they get into their front toss work, which is then within the accepted 20% parameters, we progressively, we undulate through that. We've built our, we've built our own bat, so we load them differently. Um, you know, if you buy an axe bat or skills bat, or, which I'm sure are great products, but you're kind of stuck with that one weight. And so we weight our bat differently and we kind of undulate through 10 to 22 and a half percent of the game weight over 
And then our under low bat just kind of stays at 20% under because out of the overload, underload, muscle confusion, which is not at a great term, but it just creates an environment to where the hitter has to adapt differently to execute the outcome, which is the call hard in the air. It's all about that. So you never want the players to hit the ball on the ground? No, we don't ever work on that. What if they don't have a lot of power? So, if they don't have a lot of power, the ball hit at 75 miles. I mean, if we're talking about a high school kid with not a lot of power, he's probably hit the ball between 70 and 75 miles an hour. A ball hit at 20 degrees, hit at 70 to 70 miles an hour, lands over the infield. Now, if he doesn't have a whole lot of power, he's not going to have a very big window to vary off of 20 degrees that's going to be successful, and so we really work hard to get, because the more exit velocity he can add, the bigger window he's going to have to be successful above and below 20 degrees. That means that, you know, if the ball hit at 75 miles an hour, 70 to 75 miles an hour um, on the ground is now pretty much every time because it's just not hit hard enough to go through or anything like that. But if the ball hit at 95 miles an hour on the ground, has a much better chance to go through than 75. So we really work hard, and that's why we do what we do from an exit velocity standpoint, because while launch angle makes you good today, if you hit the ball 75 miles an hour, if you can hit it at 20 degrees a lot, you're going to be good today. But what's going to make you better in the long run is you can go from 75 to 90. Because all of a sudden, 90, you know, a ball hit at 90 miles an hour, a ball hit at 75 miles an hour at 30 degrees is a pop-up out. A ball hit at 90 miles an hour at 30 degrees is a double off the wall. And so we've got to really work hard, and we write all of our programming so that guys can go from 70 to 75 miles an hour to, up to whatever it is that you can achieve. Because I don't know what their top end is. You know, we get, on average, 4 to 6% exit velocity increases over 12-week periods. But we have some guys that go up 20%, you know, and so we're really working hard to make that window around 20 degrees as big as we can make it for guys. Because I'm not so naive to think that we're going to get every ball in the air. Like, I know ground balls are going to happen. I know pop-ups are going to happen. And so I don't, we don't coach mishits. What we're trying to do is optimize their best swing, which we want to launch at the top of their exit velocity around 20 degrees. So whatever their exit velocity is, everybody's going to be good at 20. But the more exit velocity you have, the the bigger your window is going to be around 20, if that makes sense to you. Like like a ball hit at 70 miles an hour at, at zero degrees, which is the ground ball, doesn't have a whole lot of chance for a successful outcome. It's going to get caught because it's not hit very hard. Infielders are pretty skilled. They're fast. They cut the ball off. But if you hit that ground ball at 95 miles an hour, and that's in the six hole it's played in every single time because it's too hard to get to. Um, now, that, that 95 mile an hour ground ball probably means that the top end exit velocity at 20 degrees is probably going to be 105, which is, I don't have anybody that's at 105. I've got, I currently have five of the top seven exit velocity, 18U exit velocities in the southeast, but they're all in the 104 range for 18 year olds. And so we really work hard to develop that exit block. That kid that's 70, 75 that comes in, our main goal is he's going to 
stronger and I get him from seventy and eighty because every for every five percent increase you get in exit velocity, um, your batting average will go up fifty points just on the balls that you hit if you did the exact same thing last season. You hit the exact same amount of balls in the exact same way. At a five percent increase in exit velocity, your batting average will go up fifty points. And that's that's not a guess, that's like the major league number. Which I keep my guess is in youth and lower levels is higher than that. If you just raise your exit velocity by five percent, you're gonna be fifty points better on the exact same batted balls you had last year. So if you're only practicing this once or twice a week, is that a waste of time? No, I mean our guys, our guys train. We have different guys that come in in different intervals. I mean, we have some players that train once or twice a week, um, and I mean they get they get increased. I mean it's not not great. It's one maybe one or three one to three percent in twelve weeks. So certainly, the more you can train, the better percentage of increase that you're going to get in your exit velocity. But you know, I, one or two times a week is not it's not the worst thing that. I mean, it's better than zero times a week. Yeah, that's uh, that's definitely true. I saw you post the other day that Eric Hosmer would be a bad sign for someone to uh, to take. Um, why is that? Because he hits some enormous home runs. So I think I, I don't know Hosmer's average um, launch angle last year. You can find it. It's on Major League Baseball's website. But I guess if it's below league average, which is like 11. Average launch angle in the big leagues is 11. Average exit velocity is 90. And so my guess is Hogmer is below 11. Um, he was really bad at the beginning of the season, in the first half. And then he's been really bad in the last couple of years, and he was really bad in the first half of the season. And I think in the second half of the season, he starts to get the ball. Um, off the ground a little more. I just, I think there are better options. Like, like Carlos Santana is a guy whose war is probably higher than Osmer's, but he gets like no, gets no attention. You know, his signing is really not, doesn't get that much attention, but like he's a really good player. And so, the sabermetrics and the data and the numbers and all that other stuff. I think Morris will find Hosmer a place to go. It's just, if you look at the, I think the organizations that are really, like if you look at the organizations today that are really, really, really in data and analytics, none of them are trying to find Hosmer. None of them. The Dodgers aren't, the Astros aren't, the Cubs aren't. You know, the Yankees are going that way. That's why they fired Girardi. Because they want to, they want to, you know, they want a manager that's going to follow data and analytics much in the same way the Astros and the Dodgers have done. And so none of those organizations that are doing that are, are, are going to go after those guys that the data and analytics don't verify the, the amount of money that they're going to give to them. Because they're bad at ball data. We're tracking every bad at ball that's hit. And so there's, if you're paying attention, there's nowhere to hide. There's certainly old school organizations that are going to go by old school metrics, but the eye test. I think Morris did the eye test the other day. And somebody, I retweeted somebody said, I'd love to GM uh, in a world against the, in a world where, you know, the competition's using the eye test and you're using data and analytics. Like, you, you just can't, you just can't 
you can't even compete. You can't even compete against the big time analytics team if, if you're if you're not using that stuff. I don't understand why every team isn't in analytics then. And, yeah, it's an interesting. There's an interesting thing. Moneyball 2.0 is happening in baseball right now. Uh, it's an interesting thing because all pretty much all of the front offices are are they they have it. There's track men in every stadium. They're all compiling it. They're all they all have it. It's just there's so much pushback from the on field guys, the old guard on field guys in some of the organizations that the the front offices can't push it through the organization through the old guard guys. To get them to get them to go. Now it's an interesting story. The GM, I don't, I forget his name, but the GM that the Astros hired um, four years ago from the Cardinals, or four or five years ago, he fired every pitching coach in the organization when he got the job because he just got the old guard guys out. You know, we're going to go data and analytics, and, and that's why you know Joe Girardi did a fantastic job. But he was an old guard guy, and the front office wants to push the data and analytics all the way through the organization. And so, you know, it's unfortunate that a guy lost his job, and I'm not, I'm not rooting for that. But that's going to start. Guys are just going to get fired because they're, they're, there's push. There's so much pushback between the front office and the on-field guys, the guys that are actually with the players. Um, that they're not the guy, the on-field guys are not using it now. The Astros are a different story. The Dodgers are a different story. Like those organizations from the front office down. I mean, the, the Dodgers have the largest data and analytics department in baseball, um, and they're really using. The Astros are probably the most data for their player development models and playing. I mean, you can't argue with the Dodgers or the Astros' success throughout all of their. Throughout all of their levels of, of minor leagues and major leagues, it's incredible. And so, again, the Astros, you know, they have advanced artillery, and sometimes they're playing against teams from a development standpoint that are they're still using bow and arrows, and it's not even fair. But yeah, it'll all come around. I mean, it'll take a while, but it'll all come around to, to the data and analytics side because it has to. Yeah, it'll definitely even out eventually. Um, what players across Major League Baseball do you think are underrated right now? Uh, Rendon. Anthony Rendon from Washington. Uh, had an incredible year and didn't get didn't get hardly. He didn't even make the All-Star. No, I didn't hear about him that much. And he had an incredible year. Um, uh, of course, J.D. Martinez, he gets some attention, especially gets some attention online. I don't watch a lot of mainstream media, so I don't know if J.D. gets a lot of mainstream attention or not. Um, but I know in my circle, J.D. gets a lot of attention. Um, let's see. Um, I, know, I know there's somebody out there that I'm missing. Guy that you know, you know, Daniel Murphy certainly, uh, certainly a guy that turned his career around uh, by getting the ball up off the ground. But he gets attention for that. 
Well, Joey Votto is one guy. I mean, he just had his best statistical season of his career. Still didn't win MVP. I mean, just an incredible season. Big story. I mean, he just, he just, um, he just, you know, had his career low in strikeout numbers and his career high in fly ball numbers. And, you know, he, he kind of went 360 on on his cage work. I don't know if you saw the video, the Eric Burns video. He was talking about Charlie Blackman, um, about Votto talking to Blackman about getting the ball up off the top of the cage, which was unheard of, um, which is still unheard of in a lot of places. But, I mean, that, that's the truth of the matter is you've got to practice launching the ball, and that, that goes back to you've got to practice launching the ball at 20 degrees. Now, a lot of people don't have the luxury to measure that, but you've got to, you've got to be at 20 degrees, and that's up off the top of the cage. And if it, you're in a 10 to 12-foot side cage, that's 25 is 25 feet, 25 to 30 feet from home plate, driving the ball on top of the cage. That's 20 degrees. Um, if a guy doesn't have good exit velocity, the ground is not the answer. Increasing his exit velocity is the answer. He's still got to stay at 20 degrees. It's just you've got to get him or her getting the ball harder, training to get the ball harder, which can and is trained every day in our building. Um, and we track it and measure it, adjust it, write programs for it. And, you know, the, the process works. I mean, if you'd have told me, if you'd have told me I'd done playing that this is where I would be in my career as far as your slugging weighted bats and you're, you're, you're using more broad external cues and, you know, constraint-led approach and data-driven feedback, I'd have thought that you were crazy because, I thought when I got out of the game that that I just wasn't good enough. Um, I just wasn't good enough, and that I was just going to teach what they that what what I was taught, and hopefully someday along the line I would find a player that was good enough. Then you know the the data starts rolling in, and maybe it wasn't that I wasn't good enough. It was just maybe that I was getting the wrong information, which is no one's fault. Everybody was doing the best they could. It's just. We have the data that supports all the information now. I mean, the data supports the 20 degrees. But if I thought if the data supported zero degrees, I would find, you know, still trying to hit the ball in the air, we would practice hitting the ball in, at zero degrees. I mean, that's what we would do. I'm not prideful about anything. I just want to give the players the best information that we can give them and then fit the information back. Yeah. Hit the ball and launch the ball at 20 degrees. And so that's what we try to practice. And then we try to develop their exit velocity because all the information points to the greater your exit velocity at launch angle, the greater the greater uh, chance you have to be successful. So try to try to be consistently around twenty, and we try to work to increase exit velocity and try to swing train train swings dynamically so we don't get hitters that are too mechanical. We want them to be able to adapt because adaptability is is, is kind of the gold standard. Like. Of all the things that you can have as a hitter, adaptability is, is high on the list because you want to be able to do a lot of different things and go in a lot of different directions over the course of an at-bat. So if you don't have any power, go out there and lift weights and swing overload, underload bats and go get some power. Go develop the thing, yeah. And, and uh, it is developed. I mean, I think that's one short-sightedness that a lot of coaches have, like, if a guy doesn't have power, he doesn't have power, so let's just do this with him. Like, no, if he doesn't have 
you can't just write them off because you know we've had guys that that you know were seventy five that are now eighty seven, which is not top end, but that is that is getting into the territory where if they hit it if they hit it reasonably, they they might hit a home run. But you know it's not it's not all about home runs. It's, you know it's, their balls at twenty degrees are now doubles. Right. You know, hitting a home run every time up. It's just, can we drive the ball further and further, deeper and deeper through the outfield? Last question. Who was the greatest hitter of all time? Oh, it's Barry Bonds. It's not even close. Um, Thank you. I know that people um, will, will probably hate me for saying that, but like Barry Bonds, for whatever he did in 2001 to 2004, but there'll never be anybody that's that good ever again. Now, with the help, probably, go into the story, but you will never see anything like that again, like ever, unless they allow players to be helped, which I'm not saying that players aren't still helped. I'm just saying that Bonds was above and was way above the curve in Billy, and then with help on top of it, you'll never see anything like that again. And it was... And he's the best player. He's the best player ever. Like I, I'm, I will face that forever. Oh, so you think he's the best all-around player? Well, yeah. I mean, hitting, you know, position players, you're going to be judged on how well you hit the ball. And from a run production standpoint, I mean, to to a slugging standpoint, even to a defensive. I mean, the guy, 500, 500 club, even if he doesn't get help. You know, he stole bases, he won seven gold gloves. I mean, just was an incredible, incredible player. Um, and it's a shame that, that we have people that are just, I mean, the baseball riders, he's getting closer to the Hall of Fame, and hopefully he'll get in. But, like, don't play moral high ground, guys. Like, the percentage of God, if he did do what you got to say he was doing, agree Barry Bonds is the goat Chad Longworth thank you for coming on my friend alright man I appreciate you having me